Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everybody to season two, episode 45 of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. One that we're calling, should you or should you not build a group practice? And you know that from DeWalker, myself, and everybody who works at Polaris, we're decidedly rock solid in all of our opinions and we give you the best guidance possible with definitive outcomes. So today's a maybe. What are we gonna talk about? Maybe you should hang around for the show. I'm gonna pull the pin on a hand grenade today. We're gonna see if this thing blows up all over me or not. Get your popcorn ready, brew another cup of that wonderful Mila coffee. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Thanks everybody once again for joining me on the show today. We get a lot of questions around, should I or should I not build a group practice? Hey Perrin, what do you think? And in all seriousness, the answer to almost everything I'm asked in all instances is it depends, you know, and I joke about that, but it really does. It depends on so many things. And, you know, I'm going to start out today's show as we kind of dig into that thought around, should you, or should you not build a group practice? Um, It truly does depend. It depends on a lot of things. So the answer is a definite, maybe all joking aside, you've heard us say on multiple occasions that building a group is not for the faint of heart. This is not a journey for everybody. You know, you'd think that a bunch of knuckleheads that have a consulting company and an M&A advisory company that helps group practice owners either uh, launch and, and scale their group practice or exit or sale their group practice, you'd think that we would be decidedly in the camp of saying, hey, this is for everybody. Everybody should do this. Um, and that is not the case. I, I think historically, we have seen uh, a lot of hardships, um, people building a mess, um, people making mistakes around partnerships, around acquisitions, around associates, you know, people who had very successful solo practices. And when I say successful, you can categorize that however you want. Maybe it's successful culturally. There are not a lot of headaches. Maybe it's successful clinically. You have great relationships with your patients and you generate tremendous clinical outcomes. Successfully could be for you as the business owner and founder, um, financial success, personal income level. You know, you can, uh, you know, name brand recognition notoriety and stature amongst your colleagues, all of that. You can hang your hat on success in so many different ways. And there are so many people who have built successful solo practices in any of those different aspects. 
we see a lot of those who have successful solo practices start to build a group and immediately get into trouble. And usually where they get into trouble uh, is from a cash flow context and the stress level and all of that kind of fun stuff. So let's be honest with one another. I mean, this is not a journey for everybody. Um, that being said, I wanted to take um, a couple of episodes on the show. This will be the first of probably two or three. Um, I want to take a couple of episodes on the show and really kind of dig into this and and maybe start to separate our guidance around should you or should you not build a group practice. So let's take a look from a big picture perspective to start this conversation. And this is something that I'm going to fall back on some of the research that the ADA Marco Vukicis and his uh, group at uh, Health Policy Institute um, have uh, have done a lot of research and they have a good bit of data on. And by now, everybody has seen some of the, the trends in traditional solo dentist, single location, private practice ownership. You know, it's been in, I don't want to say rapid decline. It was last year on account of the M&A activity. But, you know, if we rewind the tape going back about 15 years, more than two thirds of dentists were traditional solo dentist in a single location, about 65% in 2006. In 2019, you know, 13 years later, that number was still over 50%, barely over, but still over about 50.3% according to the ADA research. And then COVID hit. We had a lot of other things transpiring. It was a, an unbelievable year for M&A activity across the board in 2021. And at the uh, beginning of 2022, uh, the ADA's Health Policy Institute indicated that about 46% of the profession were still solo dentist, single location. So less than half. That's the first time that number's ever been um, uh, below 50%, and it dropped um, below 50% pretty quickly, pretty precipitously on account of a number of factors. There were a lot of people um, exiting the profession uh, or soon to be exiting the profession after a, a year or two work back arrangement uh, in, a, in the context of a group practice buyer. So you can see where the trends are heading. And the trends are heading to group practices in general. Now, too much of our audience, and I think too much of the profession, associates group practice with private equity-backed group practices. The enterprise-level DSOs, the name brands we all know and love that are multiple hundred locations strewn about over multiple states and regions and everything like that. I'm not even really talking about that. Yeah, that, that makes up a, a significant component of the um, group practice subset, if you will. But in a percentage basis, it's about equal between private equity-backed groups and what we call doctor-founded and debt-funded. And that's the majority of the people in this audience, those that are entrepreneurs who happen to be dentists who are growing group practices and they're using bank funds to grow. So the trends are, are irreversible. We know where uh, consolidation is heading and, and it's just a matter of kind of how fast that ramp is. I don't think the industry is going to be 100% group practices within the next two to three years. I think it's going to, I don't think we'll ever get to 100%, but I think it'll take uh, quite a, a lot longer to get to, you know, that 70 to 80% number that people tend to hang their hat on. We're well over a decade to get there, in, in our opinion, and projections. So 
if you're in the audience and you're you're maybe one or possibly two locations, two is technically a group, but it's it's not, you know, the five to ten location type of a group, sitting there thinking, well, should I should I stay where I am or or should I start to build a group and build out the group? Um, you know what the trends are. Uh, you know the way consolidation is unfolding, um, and and it's not really hard to figure out. And that's probably one of the first harbingers of things to come. Um, the fact that the majority of the profession is now in some form of a group practice. So here are a couple of things that I would ask for you to consider. And you might want to, depending on if you're, you know, on the treadmill or listening to this in between patients or on the drive home or something, this may be something you want to kind of come back to and earmark, take a couple of notes on. Um, I know a lot of our audience does take notes um, on some of our podcasts. I get a lot of feedback from you, and I hope that means that the content's valuable. So here are a couple of things to consider. The first is your age. Well, that sounds kind of obvious, right? Well, it's, that's multifaceted. You know, are you within probably five years of retirement um, or are you 10 years, 15 years, 20 to 25 years from retirement? Whatever the age of retirement is. I don't know if that's 60, if it's 65, if it's 70 or what, but how close are you uh, to retirement? Um, and, and what's the time frame there as it relates to, um, you know, walking away altogether? If you're a couple of years then, you know, away from it, then I would tell you it's not worth the risk to build a group. On the other hand, if you're mid-career or younger, I think you absolutely have to consider it. Um, the next piece is relative to the way your business is constituted right here, right now, today, and the dynamics around your family and your financial well-being, how much are you counting on the sale of your business to fund your retirement or not. A lot of people, uh, especially high income earners um, that are professionals and you know like the the trappings of a of a successful career, tend to spend a lot of money. Um, some of that is in consumption purchases. Some of it is in uh, more fixed debt, like second homes and cars and all that kind of stuff. Kids in college, you know, planning for a wedding, if you have a daughter like I do, all that kind of stuff. So are you really banking on the sale of your business to fund your retirement? Or is it the cherry on top? Like your retirement's fairly well taken care of. You're you're rolling out of a lot of your fixed debt. Um, uh, you, you've got, you know, your future funding commitments already satisfied, and 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 you have a, a nice nest egg for you and your spouse, and you feel pretty secure about that, as secure as you can be, at least in today's economic climate. Um, but what does the business sale really mean to you? Is it the icing on the cake, the cherry on top, or is it absolutely mission critical? to being able to make ends meet later in life. Um, that is, uh, those are two significantly different ends of the bell curve and you need to be really clear about that. The business right now, um, the way it's constituted, how dependent is the business on your clinical skills? If you are a successful uh, solo dentist in a single location, it is 
for all intents and purposes, 100%, the success of the business is 100% dependent upon your clinical skills. On the other hand, if you own, you know, two or three locations and you have two or three associates working for you um, who are not partners in the business, and you're still working a couple of days a week in a clinical capacity, then you're deriving some level of passive income from them. And the business isn't, the sale of the business isn't predicated upon your continuity of clinical skills. So we want to think through the, the what we call provider risk. So is the business dependent upon your clinical skills? And if it is, um, to, to what degree? 100%, 50%, 20%, you know, let's let's assess your own provider risk is what I'm kind of getting you to do. Um, the next thing would be looking at the business the way it's constituted now and thinking about the next two to three to five years, what type of margin pressure are you forecasting? Uh, and margin pressure comes uh, from a variety of means. The ADA has done um, a lot of work historically uh, about the declining uh, reimbursement rates from insurance companies. That's a revenue pressure on the top end. We know about wage escalation. Uh, obviously, we're all living through that. Every business is, not just dental practice. We are, too, uh, at Polaris. So there's wage escalation, which creates a rising cost environment. Um, the cost of equipment, technology, things along those lines. Um, whether you borrow money to fund that or fund that out of cash or uh, cash reserve funds, um, that does create margin pressure as well. So what is the, the when you look inside your crystal ball and you evaluate the financial health of the business today and the margin that you make typically that results in an owner income level, how much do you forecast that to continue the way it is now or do you think there's going to be more of a squeeze in the coming years? And, you know, again, if you're two years away from retirement, you can probably weather the storm. If you're 10 to 15 years from retirement and you start to see that that margin pressure uh, getting worse, the margins getting narrower, then then that's a real pressure point uh, of the next couple of decades, the next decade or so that you're probably going to struggle to solve for. So. You know, those considerations, your age, the time to retirement, um, whether or not your retirement funding is dependent upon the sale of the business, um, the provider risk in terms of your clinical skills and the margin pressure in the coming years are things that I would want to get some level of objectivity around um, to the best of your ability. And that starts to paint a clearer picture in terms of the threats to the business and the weaknesses of the business. And you can you can you can kind of categorize those by either an exit potential or if you're mid-career, obviously operating the business going forward. This is something where if you're going to build a group practice, if it's the right strategy, that's not going to happen overnight. You know, I mean you're going to have to take a, a five to 10 year look at where you would want the business to end up in terms of revenue volume, in terms of um, uh, number of locations, debt service, um, potential uh, minority partners, and all along the likes. And that doesn't come to be in the next 24 to 36 months. So all of us 
tend to be of an instant gratification mindset. Look, we all are, just admit it. You and I uh, both, we, we like things to happen quickly and we have instant gratification in the way we evaluate too many things. Um, it's a shortcoming of everybody. But if you're going to build a business, you have to think five to 10 years out. And if your retirement horizon is more than five to 10 years out, then you really need to think about the pressures on the business, the way it's currently currently constituted and what you can do to build a, a different business, a bigger business, a more dynamic business that would alleviate some of those pressures. So what I'm talking about here now is not a, a buzzword that you're starting to see crop up in a lot of blogs and webinars and videos and podcasts. And, and that two-word term is recession-proof, all right? DeWalker and I will probably do an episode or two around recession-proofing your business. Um, we don't have it on the schedule yet, but it, it's reasonable to conclude that we will do a couple of episodes around that. And that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about here recession proof is is very short term we're going to we're going to hit a recession we're going to hopefully come out of the recession over the course of the next year but whatever the recession is 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 probably not going to impact the way we think about it from a strategic level in terms of the business we want to build for the next 5 to 10 years all right so recession proofing a business is a speed bump on the way to something larger so what i'm talking about specifically the phrase I would use is more defensible strategy. All right. So if you, if you're going to be retiring in the next, you know, five years, let's say, um, you need to be prepping the business for sale. It, you've heard me on the podcast before we talked about this, like, you know, don't, don't pick up the phone and call me into Walker when, when you've had it and you want to sell the business and you're ready to do it right now. We would much rather you pick up the phone or send us an email two years before you you want to go to market and say, hey, guys, I'm thinking about selling the business in another two to three years. Can we take an initial pass at where the business is, what a what a uh, you know evaluation might be, roughly speaking, uh, who the potential buyers might be from a work back context and all that. And let's let's get a handle on the next two to five years. That's getting the business ready for sale. That is an exit strategy. If your intention is to be out, done, gone, retired, you know, living at the beach um, within the next five years, that's probably a phone call you need to make to us from an exit planning standpoint imminently now, I would tell you, because we would like to take a, a look at the business before you're ready to go to market to make sure that that we feel certain around maximum valuation and we understand what your expectations are. That's somebody that's arguably 55, 60, 65 years old. They're, they're looking to exit in the next five years. If, on the other hand, you are I use the term mid-career loosely. Uh, let's say you're in your early 30s to late 40s, maybe 50 years old. You've probably got another 10 to 15, maybe 25 years to, to practice. This profession looks significantly different over that horizon. And I, I would tell you that those that are 15 to 25 years uh, from retirement, you have to think about not your business today being 
the way it's going to be 15 to 25 years from now in terms of look, shape, feel, um, maybe even clinical services, everything is going to change over that period of time. Some of it's going to be patient or consumer driven. Some of it is going to be reimbursement driven. Some of it is going to be your um, priorities and lifestyle driven. Some of it's going to be technologically driven. Your business will be altogether different in the next 15 to 25 years. So how do you think about building a defensible strategy to know that your business isn't just recession proof, but it's defendable from all facets. You can build a business that's not dependent upon you and your clinical skills. It has the it has staying power. It has the ability to um, uh, add more patients, to potentially add more locations or more available capacity, possibly in terms of days and hours. Um, you're, you're generating more revenue through uh, a variety of services rendered. You as the business owner are generating more income, hopefully, that is not a direct result of your clinical participation. If you want to continue to work clinically a couple of days a week, great. But it would be better if the business were bigger and it has a more defensible position and that it's not wholly dependent upon you for survival. So that also could mean multiple minority partners in the mix. So this you know, we're hearing a lot around the phrase recession proof. And my fear for, for a lot of you in the audience is that recession proof has a, you're going to hear about it on the nightly news, not just about dentistry, but it's going to have a familiar refrain to it. And, and you're going to be focused exclusively on recession proofing your business. You should focus on recession proofing your business, but not at the expense of the growth strategy of the business. The growth strategy has to be one from a context of how do I build a business that's not dependent upon me? How do I build a business that I can defend against all extraneous threats and, and outside influences and have some degree of confidence that it will sustain me and my family for the long haul? That is a completely different mindset and one that requires a lot more forethought. And I would tell you that in today's world of dentistry, it all but requires you to build a group practice. And that is the coming full circle on this topic for today, where I said that, you know, we're, we don't think this is the journey for everyone. If you're a couple of years from retirement, you shouldn't take the risk uh, to, to do this. Um, if you have a boutique solo practice that is uh, high margin and um, uh, all fee for service, so there's no insurance pressures, and um, you, maybe you do a lot of cosmetic or a lot of expanded uh, specialty type dentistry, dental uh, clinical procedures and things like that, you know, you might have built a a unicorn, for lack of a better term, that that is unique um, in your local marketplace. It pro those businesses probably have a higher level of what I would call customer experience or patient experience in this context. And and if they do, then then you probably have a lot of loyalty amongst your patient base that they don't care what you charge for a crown or a cleaning. They're not going to leave you for somebody else. They're going to stay with you for the long haul. If you've built one of those businesses and you're, you're mid-career, then you might be able to, to uh, 
sustain the business and withstand the competitive pressures of the coming years. But if you're a traditional dentist that does traditional procedures in a traditional setting and you have a traditional payer mix and everything, you cannot afford to be in the middle of the bell curve and expect your family lifestyle and your personal income to be sustained for the next 15 to 20 years the way it has been for the previous 15 to 20 years. I don't think that is assumption that is an that that is an assumption that you can bank your future on literally. I think you have to consider building a group practice and I think there are compelling uh uh reasons to do it and if you don't you're going to lose time and if you lose time it's going to be harder to make up the defensible position in the long haul. So this, this kind of defensible strategy, this defensible position that I'm talking about is typically about being larger. If you have a single practice that happens to be 20 to 30 operatories, I think about that more in terms of a group than I do in terms of a traditional, you know, five operatory general dentistry practice that generates 750 grand in revenue. You know, that when I when I say a, a typical solo practice, that's what I'm talking about. You know, ADA average around 750 grand in revenue, four to five ops or something like that, you know, uh, all different insurance payer mix and everything. You know, that that's what I'm talking about in terms of solo practice. If you have a large footprint solo practice with multiple providers all under one roof, think about it more in terms of a group. If you have a you know, two six op practices. I think you need to think about it in terms of growing that particular group into a, a larger footprint. So the question for you really does come down to evaluating your age and, and your horizon before retirement. If you're closer to that exit, um, then probably pick up the phone, give us a call. Let's put some pen to paper and figure out, you know, is the sale of the business going to meet what your needs are or what do we need to do to get it there? And what would the work back period be? you know, to, to really kind of dial that in. On the other hand, if you're 15 to 25 years uh, before you're going to be retiring, then I think you you have to take a serious look at building your own group. If you're somewhere in the middle, meaning like beyond five years, but five to 15 years in terms of a, a work horizon, you may be in, in a little bit of no man's land. Um, I would tend to lean more towards building a group, honestly. I, I think once we get into the next five to 10 years, the competitive pressures are going to be really different than what they've been historically. And if you're operating a solo practice, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be challenging. It's going to be difficult. You know, so... I'll kind of recap what I started off with, which is that this is not a journey for everybody. We, Even though we run a consulting company that focuses on group practices, we don't think that this is something that everybody should do. But but if I'm mid-career and, and a dentist and a, have a successful practice and it's a solo practice, I got to think long and hard about the reasons that I would not add multiple locations to my uh uh, to my envelope and and do it from a standpoint of being able to to create some greater level of security around my personal income and and my family's well-being. So I, I hope this first part of this overarching, 
you know, thought process and topic has been a little bit enlightening for you. Again, the things to consider are your age, the time to retirement. Are you dependent upon the sale of the business to fund that retirement? Uh, is the business dependent upon your clinical skills? And what do you think the margin pressure is going to be in the next probably five years? If you are five years from exit, pick up the phone and give us a call and let's at least have that initial conversation. On the other hand, if you're 15 to 25 years, your mid-career or something like that from retirement, you've got to think not just recession-proof for the short term, but defensible strategy in terms of the business you're building and what you want it to look like in another five to 10 years to secure your personal uh, well-being to do it. Um, and and I think this is a, a little bit of a mindset shift for probably a lot of you in the audience, and hopefully it's given you something to think about on today's podcast. I certainly hope that uh, you're enjoying the podcast. Uh, sincere thanks to everybody who has given us the, the ratings and reviews that you have. Uh, they continue to be stellar. I really appreciate it. We do put a lot of work into our podcast, and I hope that shows. Um, and I also hope that you'll take a second and and you know, recommend it to your friends and colleagues. You can share episodes directly off the home screen on Apple iTunes, uh, and there are ways to do that on Spotify, Stitcher, and the other um, uh, services. So our, our listenership grows every month. I can see it from the download numbers. Uh, and I appreciate those of you who are um, who are sharing the podcast amongst your colleagues and, and certainly the, the nice compliments we get back. If you've got questions around this particular topic or anything else, uh, feel free to shoot me an email. You can always reach me at perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.